Have it, I pray. And how about we get into the Bible together? Let's pray. Our Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you speak to us in it, and I pray that you would do just that tonight. Father God, please give us hearts that are ready to hear what you have to say to us. Uh, Lord, give us hearts that are, that are ready to hear and respond. Um, and Lord, wherever we are at with this stuff tonight, I pray that you would do something in us by your word and by your spirit. Amen. Okay, well, what's your identity? What's your identity? Where do you get your value? What is it about you that you think actually really matters, that kind of makes you who you are? Because there's a million possible things that you could look to as the thing that you kind of find your identity in. There's so many options. So it could be that it's, for you, it might be a relationship status. You might be that girl who's going out with that guy. That might be how you think of yourself. You might be that guy who wishes they were going out with that girl and that's just who you are, this person who's got this thing they wish they had but they don't. Maybe it's your friends, right? It could be that your identity is caught up in your friends. You're a person who's got lots of friends, maybe lots of Facebook friends and you're all about getting them likes and stuff and that's just who you are. You're the person who's just connected with everyone. It could be your looks, could be the way you look. I'm the person who everyone reckons is the hot chick. I'm the person who wishes that I was that hot chick, whatever. It could be your academic success. Maybe you're the person who's just known for trying really hard at school. You always do your homework, you work hard, you go for it, and then later on in life, you'll probably be the person who's got a good career and a nice job or whatever. Maybe that's your identity, the hard and smart person. I don't know. It could be that it's sport. Maybe you're that person who's really good at soccer. Maybe if you tried hard enough and worked at it enough, there's a possibility that you might be able to represent Australia one day. And so you're that sport person. Could be your identity. It could be something a little bit more kind of chilled out than that. So rather than the kind of those pretty full-on things, maybe it's just something small like a hobby. Maybe for you, you are that surfy guy or that skater kid or that, um, that gamer I'm the person who's just playing games all the time. That's who I am. And maybe you're that stamp collector person. I don't know, whatever. It could be anything, right? But the point is, when you hang out with that crew of stamp collectors or skaters or whatever, you're with your people, you feel like you belong, and so that's who you are. Do I have any stamp collector groupies along here? <laughs> okay, here we go. I think you might be lying, but oh well. I'm really sorry if you do collect stamps and it's literally your thing, though digging myself a deeper hole. Anyway, there you go. Um, It might even be, though, that it's none of those things. Maybe you're just the funny person. You know what I mean? You don't have that much going on for you, but you can say stuff that makes people laugh, and that seems to make them like you. And so you're the funny guy. That's who you are. The person who's there to kind of be the class clown or whatever. Or it may even be that your identity, well, when you think about it, actually, uh, you don't really consider yourself being someone who really has much of an identity, Maybe as you think about yourself, well, you don't reckon you're really good at anything and you don't think you're much of an anybody and you just, I don't know, I just don't really have an identity. I'm nothing, man. I don't know. That might be you. Now, this identity thing, right, is huge. This whole idea of who you are, your identity, is the reason why it's possible that you could go to school and all these different little groups of people exist 
And so you walk into a different, like, I don't know, tell me if your school is like this. I'd love to have your hands up if you tell me this is your school. But at your school, this was mine, do you, like, walk through the schoolyard? I don't want to say playground because I'm told that's very condescending, but you walk through the schoolyard at lunchtime and, and you see people and it's like, there's a surfy crew and they're sitting together and there's the handball crew, if that is an identity group, and there's the hot girls and there's the nerd crew near the library. Is this, does this your school? Does this happen or not? A little bit. Okay, cool. It used to happen at my school big time, right? The same identity thing is a huge thing as you get older. So if you're my age or a little bit younger than me, right, you go to a party when you're 25, you say, hey, nice to meet you, I'm John, and they'll say, nice to meet you, Jono, what's the next question out of their mouth? What do you do? And behind that is the theory that is, well, what you do is who you are. Derek, the doctor. Elliot, the receptionist, et cetera, et cetera. Such <laughs> Gemma, the dance school girl. You know, what we do becomes who we are. That's the world we live in. And in a world like that, it's easy to buy the lie that all these different things about the things that we do or what we look like or whatever, it's easy to buy the lie that those things become who we are. We get defined by those things. But the thing is, if you sit back and actually reflect on that for a second, if that were really true, that's actually pretty depressing. Imagine if all that was to a person was that they were the funny person or the person who looked a certain way or the person who did a certain thing or the person who did a certain job or whatever. If that's what we are, it's actually pretty depressing because those things will come and go and then, well, what are we left with? if that's who we are. Tonight's passage is going to show us that if our trust is in Jesus, he offers us something much better and richer than that. He offers us something incredible. He offers us a new identity that is caught up in him and it's amazing. It's fantastic. You can find your worth somewhere else. You can find your value in being a part of something that is much bigger than you or the things you do or what you look like or whatever. There is somewhere you can belong. There is a way to have a purpose in life that is much bigger than all these other things that the world will say about who we are. And so as we dig into this passage tonight, that's what we're going to see. It's amazing stuff. And so the first thing I want us to see tonight really quickly um, is in verse 10. And I should say as we go there, right, we're working through verses 4 to 10. And I'm going to start at the end, which is a little bit weird, but the reason is this passage jumps around heaps. And so, just so we can get our head around the flow, I actually want to start at the end, right? But here's the first thing. Christians have a new position. That is, we've been shown mercy by God. Check out verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. We'll come back to that. But then he says, once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy. Now, what's mercy? It's a word that gets thrown around lights, but what does it actually mean? Mercy is not giving people what they deserve. So imagine you're playing that game, you know that game Mercy, where you've got your friend's hands and you're trying to like bend each other's wrists like that? Like the theory is, right, if you lose this game, then you have the right to like break your friend's wrist and twist them and hurt them and you, you get to do that to them until they go, mercy, mercy, and then you, they stop and you don't break their wrists anymore because what they deserved was to have their wrist all twisted up like that, but when you ask for mercy, you don't give them what they deserve. That's what that game's all about. That's, that's mercy. Now for us, what we deserve from God because of our sin 
is actually His right judgment at our sin, right? We deserve His right judgment. But in Jesus, we're shown mercy so that we don't get what our sins deserve. That's what verse 10 is talking about. It's about us being shown mercy. And so, guys, if you're a Christian, you have a new position before God. You have a new position of being someone who's been shown mercy. You're forgiven. God's no longer angry at your sin. It's dealt with. You've been shown mercy. Because it's worthwhile noting that uh, if you're not a Christian, if you're not someone who's put their trust in Jesus, then what that means is that well, you need to hear a warning in this passage here tonight. Verses 7 and 8 is aimed at you. It's a warning for you. And it's talking about the consequences of not believing in Jesus. Have a look at verse 7. It says, Now to you who believe this stone, talking about Jesus, uh, is precious. But to those who do not believe, he's got something for us, um, this stone has be- the, the stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone, right, is the most important stone in a building in old-timey days, right? You're building a building, the cornerstone is this thing that makes the whole thing fit together and hold up. So, if you're missing your cornerstone in your building, your whole building falls down. And this verse is saying, it's like the builders, the one who's supposed to know what they're doing with their stones and building stuff, well, they've, they've missed the cornerstone, the most important one. And instead, verse 8, it says they actually trip over the cornerstone. Instead of using it for a good purpose, they're tripping over it. And it's talking about Jesus, right? And it's saying that Jesus is the key. He's the cornerstone. He's the most important thing in life. He's the key to finding mercy from God. And so if you're someone who's dismissed Jesus or is in danger of doing that with Jesus and ignoring him, then you'll miss the most important thing in life. There's the warning for those of us who don't yet trust him. Now, that sounds pretty heavy, right? And I want to say, if you're new to this stuff... Well, I guess there is a warning there, but this, that doesn't have to be the end for you. So wrestle with this stuff more and, and think, well, who is this Jesus person who's got such a claim on my life, right? Anyway, as Christians, we have a new position. We've been shown mercy. And that's a good thing. Now, if God never did anything else for us ever again, except show us mercy in Jesus, that would be reason enough for us to be stoked for the rest of our lives. If that was the only thing that God ever did for us was show us mercy in Jesus, man, that would be enough. But here's the thing with this passage we're looking at tonight. He doesn't just not give us what our sins do deserve. God actually heaps blessings on us and gives us so many things that we don't deserve to have, so many good things that we don't deserve. This passage is full of them. Here's one of them. Here's the second thing. Here's the second part of our, our identity as Christians, right? We're the new place where God lives. We're the new place where God lives. Have a look at verse 4 and 5 with me. Now we'll start at the start of the passage, right? Verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, that's talking about Jesus, right? This capstone guy. But chosen by God and precious to him. Now he's talking to us. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, and so on and so on. He's saying to Christians, you Christians are like living stones, part of a living building, being built into a spiritual house. Now, that idea of a spiritual house is basically like being a temple. It's the same kind of word as a temple. It's saying that 
You Christians, you, the church, if that's you, are like a temple for God. Now, in the Old Testament, God lived in a physical building called the temple. That's where he hung out and priests served there and did their thing, right? But this is saying that us people are houses for God that he lives in by his Holy Spirit. So God is living among us, in us, inside of us takes up residence there. That is crazy (laughs) that God would... Can you think of anything that is as high an honour as having the God of the universe live among us, live in us, in our lives? That's amazing. (laughs) Like, we get pretty excited when someone famous is, like, nearby, you know what I mean? Like, like, uh, when I was younger, Matthew McConaughey did a gap year for his year 12 and went to Gorakin High School, where I lived on the Central Coast years ago, right? And I was like, now I know that Matthew McConaughey did that. And I'm like, that's kind of cool. Matthew McConaughey lived near me for a year, right? The God of the universe, if you're a Christian, lives in you. (laughs) Not in the same suburb, and he's not some washed-up actor either, right? It's the God of the universe, and he lives in you. That is the most incredible thing. I may have offended Lucy by calling Matthew McConaughey washed up. He's pretty good, I guess, but sorry, Lucy. All right, now... (laughs) What does that mean for us, though, that God lives in us, right? Well, for starters, it is an amazing privilege, but it's also a privilege that will shape the way you live. You think about that for a second. If God now lives in us, the church, then that should shape how we live. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 6 Paul talks about how if we're, if we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, then you want to watch the way you live when God lives inside of you. He says, should you take the temple of the Holy temple of God and now join it with a prostitute as one example? And he says, absolutely not. Don't commit sexual immorality. Don't get drunk. Don't swear. Don't lie. Be careful how you use your body now that you know God, in fact, lives in you. That's a call on our lives. And so honour God with your bodies. You have a new identity now. God lives in you. We're the new place that houses God. That's amazing. Thirdly, we're the new people of God. You can see this one pretty easily in the passage. Look at verse 9. This is a big thing that he's trying to point out. He says it like three or four times. Check out verse 9. He says, But you're a chosen people, number one, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, Listen again, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. We are the new people of God. Now, chosen people, he says it there in verse 9. Basically saying that we are the people that God has chosen to make his own. By his own goodness, he's chosen us. A holy nation. Now, when it talks about holy nation in the Old Testament, who was the holy nation? Who were the people of God in the Old Testament? Israel. So Israel were God's people in the Old Testament, right? And so to be a part of God's people, you needed to be a part of this physical nation named Israel. This is saying, no, no, Christians now from every nation in the world are now the holy nation and you become a part of this holy nation, this people of God, through faith, not by born into it, into Israel or whatever. And we're God's special possession, his chosen people, the people of God. Chosen not because of anything wonderful or perfect about us, but because God in his goodness chose to make us his. That's huge. 
Have you ever wished that you were a part of something bigger? Perhaps that you had an identity that was bigger than just who you are or what you look like or what you do. Well, here it is. If you're a Christian, you're actually a part of the main storyline of history. You're at the centre of what God has been doing in the world throughout all of history. Because God's big thing that he's been doing in the world has been that he's been gathering a people to himself who were his own, that he's chosen for himself. And Christians, that's us. And this thing that God is doing of gathering this people, right, it's going to last forever. And so if you, are, if you are a part of the people of God, then you'll continue to be that into eternity and you'll continue to be connected to all the other Christians in the world for eternity and you'll be connected to the God who rules over that people for all eternity. That's a big deal. That is a huge thing to be a part of if you can get what's going on here. All right, so here it is. We've been given a new position as we've been shown mercy We are the new place where God lives, we're the temple. We are the people of God. And so the question is, if that's who we are, right, if all of this is a description of what it is to be a Christian and the blessings that come with that, well then, how do we live our lives now as Christians? Like, how do you live out this reality in your life? Well, I reckon the last piece of the puzzle will kind of help us with that. It, It will help us with that. And here's the fourth thing I want us to see tonight. Christians are the new priests who worship God. Now, that's a weird one, isn't it? I just said that Christians are all priests. That's a pretty odd thing if you think about it. Who who kind of, I don't know, left home this morning being like, well, better get off to work and be a priest for the day. Like, that's a weird way to describe just you and me sitting here, right? Look at the passage. It's what it says. Have a look at verse verse 5. It says, you are like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And just in case you thought that was like a typo, look again at verse 9. It says, you are chosen people, a royal priesthood. Twice he says it. That's significant. He's got something to tell us here. We are all priests. If, you're, if your trust is in Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're priests. Now, did everyone happen to get their sacrificial goat and sacrificial knife at the door? Because soon we're going to do some priest... Like, what, what does this actually mean that we're priests? Like, what the heck are we supposed to do with that exactly? Well, royal priesthood, what does that mean? Royal means that we're serving the king. And in this context, it's Jesus. So we're priests in the service of the king, Jesus. But what does a priest actually do? In the Old Testament, right, the priests were the people who had full access to God. So their job was to be the ones who actually were on the front line, their full access to God in the temple. They were the ones who were up close and personal with God and they served him and they worshipped him almost on behalf of the rest of the people. That's what the priests did. If God was like, I don't know, Ed Sheeran, right? Then kind of Israel is like, they can kind of watch the concert from afar But the priests have got backstage tickets to see God up close and personal, be there with him and, and in this case, worship him and and sacrifice to him. Now, what that means, guys, is it's been something pretty epic for us. If we are all priests, if you're a Christian, that means now you do have full access to God. So you don't need a priest to get connected with God. You are a priest. 
You have full access to God now, particularly through the work of Jesus, who Hebrews says is the great high priest, who is the sacrifice as well, who died for us. And so we have unlimited access to God. You can talk to Him. You can worship Him in the day-to-day of your life. Your sin is dealt with. You have access to God. Now, what do we do with these sacrifices? Verse 4 says that we're a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, one of the cool things about um, having the job of speaking to you guys at EV Youth, right, is that sometimes you get the chance to just dig into the Word and learn new stuff yourself and be blessed by your own work in the Bible as you prepare something like that. And for me, this week, I was blown away by what I found as I digged into this idea of being priests of God. Because that, to me, just sounds like a weird, strange thing that I've not really thought about much. But actually, the, the, the New Testament is stacked full of this idea of the fact that as Christians, we're priests of God who make spiritual sacrifices to serve Him. And so let me show you some of the stuff I saw this week, because it's pretty amazing, right? Check it out. First thing is this. Praising God with our voices is a spiritual sacrifice that pleases God. That's the first thing I saw. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 13, maybe up on the screen, because we're going to jump around a little bit. Hope you can read that. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess His name. Now, what that's saying is that it actually pleases God when we praise Him. It's actually a thing that brings Him joy. And so that happens for us when we just talk about God. We might be talking to each other later on tonight around the fire and we'll say, man, how good is God? God is like this. That's an amazing thing. And so that pleases God. We might do that as we pray to Him and just tell Him how good we think He is. And a big way that we do that is actually we formally gather, we grab some instruments and we sing praises to God with our mouths. And when we do that, that's not just a thing that we do because we happen to like music or we think it's whatever. It, it's a sacrifice to God that actually pleases Him. That's a big deal. That's pretty cool. So how do you view singing at EV Youth? It's actually worship of God that pleases Him. That's what it is. It's a sacrifice that He loves to hear as we pour out our voices to Him. For me, I reckon I've got the habit of viewing like singing as we gather as, I don't know, like a good thing that's nice and I like it and it encourages me and I encourage some other people, I hope, but I'm a pretty bad singer. But man, the thought that the God of the universe is actually listening on, hearing the things we're saying and is pleased by them as a sacrifice that brings him glory, that's huge. That's awesome. So how do you, how do we look when we sing our praises to God? What are we doing with our voices? What are we doing with our bodies? Do we look like people who are actually addressing the God of the universe and praising Him? Or do we look like someone who's in a boring conversation with their uncle who's kind of like half on their phone and kind of mumbling some words and thinking about what they're going to be doing tomorrow or whatever? See, it's possible to take worshipping God in song and turn it into something that it's not. That's possible, right? So you can overemphasize this thing and kind of turn it into this weird mystical experience where we think that by singing we're somehow entering into God's presence in some special way and whatever it's going to do something for us it's it's not that but 
it is possible to undervalue what it is we're doing when we gather and we sing praises to God. We can chronically undervalue that. And I reckon that's our bigger danger here at EV Youth, is that we're people who like the Bible and we're not one of those churches with a view on singing songs and so whatever, you know. And so I want to say, guys, every time you walk in those doors and gather or wherever you gather with God's people and decide to crack out a guitar and sing or not or whatever, that's an opportunity to please God with your voice as you offer up praises to Him. That's something worth giving yourself to. Pleases Him. Secondly, though, we sacrifice to God, get this, with our good works. That might sound pretty weird, but we please God, we sacrifice to God with our good works. The very next verse in Hebrews chapter 13 says, he's just told them about using their voices, and he says, and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Now, did you know that as Christians, I'm interested to know, did you know that as Christians, our good works can actually please God? See, I reckon here at EV Youth, we're so conscious that we're sinners and we want to make sure that people understand that you can't be saved by the things that you do and your good works will not make you right with God and so we drum that into you guys, right? But I wonder if it's possible that we've actually forgotten that there is such a thing as pleasing God by the way we live. We can actually please God by the way we live. That's a good thing, isn't it? I don't know if we've forgotten that. Um, This week, right, I was reading this verse with John Hanlon, who uh, he's not here tonight, right? But he's one of our leaders. I was reading this verse with Hanlon in my Bible study, and he read it out, and then he laughed, and he was like, "Oh man, I can't read that word uh, good deeds, do, good doing good stuff, without it sounding like a dirty word, like a Christian swear word, because we don't have good deeds. We're sinful, rotten sinners who, you know, we we can't please God with what we do. Like, you know, and he, he knew that he was wrong, but it just felt that way to him because he was so convinced that we're sinners, and that's true." But when Jesus saves us from our sin, he doesn't just redeem us from the consequences of our sin, he actually redeems us in a way that even our actions are now redeemed and are now able to actually please him. So our deeds, the good things that we do, simple things like sharing with others, can please God as a sacrifice to him. And so guys, give yourself to doing good because it pleases the Lord. Live how God would have you live, with generosity. And some simple stuff, if you see someone in need, help them out. And that's good for them, but it also pleases God as a sacrifice to Him. If you see someone who is lonely and needs a friend, well, be a friend to them. Share with your friendship, share with whatever you've got. Do good and let it be a pleasing sacrifice to God. (laughs) That's cool, that's really good. Number three, we can sacrifice and please God with our money. Check out Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. Now, the context of this verse up on the screen is that um, Paul is talking to some people who've given him some money to fuel gospel ministry, right? Look at how Paul talks about their gift of money. He says, I've received full payment and I've had more, and I have more than enough. I'm amply supplied and I've now received from Epaphroditus, who's just a guy with a funny name, the gifts you sent. So he's got their money. Now, listen to this. The money they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. They give their money and he receives it and he says that that money that you gave was an acceptable, pleasing sacrifice to God. 
Now, that word there, a fragrant offering, that's what they used to do in the Old Testament. They'd make offerings to God and they would burn them and it would make stuff smell because when you burn stuff, it, the smell would come out. And, and the Bible says that metaphorically, that smelt good to God. Not that he's got nostrils that smell things necessarily, but it's, it's an image of God enjoying this sacrifice in front of him. This verse is saying, when we give our money, God's like, I like the smell of that. That's good. That pleases me. When we give our money away so that people can hear about Jesus. See, don't just give your money away to gospel things, and I hope that you do if you're a Christian. Don't just do that, though, because you feel guilty or obligated to. It's a good thing to feel the responsibility to be generous with what we've got and the responsibility to actually use our money rightly. That's a good thing, right? But when you do that and when you give with your money, don't just give because you feel obligated or whatever. Give because when you do, you know that that actually pleases God. God's like, that smells good. I like that. Cook more of that up for me. It's a sacrifice to Him. Guys, this is the reason why about, I don't know how long ago, four or five years... Six years, who knows, a long time ago, um, me personally made the decision to get rid of having a door fee at Eva Youth, right? We used to come to youth and everyone would just pay as they arrived to kind of cover costs and make stuff happen. I intentionally got rid of that because I didn't want new people to feel like they had to pay, but I also didn't want to rob us as Christians of the chance of being able to please God with our money. And so that's why we do what we do, and we've never really kind of made the same amount of money door fee versus giving. And, and that's okay. It would be good if we could see more money for gospel ministry through either youth. But the point is it's an opportunity for us to intentionally, willingly give up our money to please God. That's a privilege. That's a good thing. So I encourage you in that. Number four, though, we make pleasing sacrifices to God when we do evangelism. This language just keeps on coming up and up again, again and again in the, in the Bible. Romans 15, verse 16, right? Paul is talking here and he says that he, Jesus, he's talking about Jesus, gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's probably five words in that verse that you don't understand. That's okay. The point is this, right? Paul's talking about the fact that he's got this specific job to preach the gospel to a particular group of people called the Gentiles, which is just everyone in the world who's not a Jew. That's his job. He's telling people about Jesus, right? But he's saying that when he tells people about Jesus and they hear and they believe and trust him, these Gentiles are becoming an offering acceptable to God. When we do evangelism, we create new worshippers of God. When people come to trust in Jesus, new worshippers who will live forever worshipping God are created. And so those people themselves become an offering, acceptable and pleasing to God. So guys, this is important to get, right? People need to hear about Jesus because it will mean them being saved from an eternity of hell, right? So that's important, that's true, but that's not all there is to it. Because evangelism is actually the business, like I said, of creating new worshippers of God who will bring glory to him forever. And so evangelism, telling people about Jesus, first and foremost, is actually about God's glory. And secondarily, it's about the fact that people are saved from their sin. But guys, can you think of anything more important than spending your life 
seeing other people put their trust in Jesus so that they would worship him forever into eternity. If that's actually true, if that's actually reality, that's the best thing you could ever give yourself to, bringing new eternal worshippers of God into existence through hearing the good news about Jesus. That's a good thing to give yourself to. You've got a lot of opportunities to do that right now at school. You're hanging out with people who don't know Jesus every single week. Um, Friday next week, 5 o'clock, Pancakes and Jesus. Who can you invite along? Who could you at least pray about and perhaps ask and see what happens? The result is that they get heaven and God gets glory forever when they become a worshipper of him forever. And so there's our sacrifices, right? Our praises, our good works, our money, our evangelism. Here's the last thing I want you guys to see. Our whole lives become spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God when we give them up for him. Here's a pretty famous verse. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of what he's done on the cross, like we already saw, we've been shown mercy, to offer your bodies as, living, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. There he's saying, offer God everything. Give him everything. We've seen four key things, but basically that verse is saying, take your whole life and hand it over to God and say this whole thing, everything that I've got, every decision, every asset, every, every possible thing that is at my disposal now is yours, God. I hand it over to you and that brings glory to God, that we would worship him by sacrificing our whole lives to him. That is how we do our job as New Testament priests serving the King Jesus. That's, that's good news. Now, at the start, we said that there are a million possible ways that you could find your identity. There's a million possible things you could find your identity in. Right? It might be relationships or the way you look or your brains or your sport or your hobby or stamp collecting, whatever. Right? But if all that is who we really are, if you want to boil us down our value into just that, I want to suggest that's a pretty depressing way to think about life. It doesn't ultimately give you much to live for. But man, if you're a Christian, then you've been given this new identity. This stuff here in this passage is true of you. You have been caught up into a movement which is that God has been growing throughout all of history and it's going to last into eternity. You have a new position, you've been shown mercy. You are the new place where God himself lives. We are the new people of God and we are the new priests who live to worship him and that brings him joy, brings him pleasure. That's worthwhile, that's something to live for that matters. That's an identity that is valuable. So brothers and sisters, this is who we are in Jesus. That's good. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you don't just show us mercy and forgive us, but you actually, Lord, give us a whole new identity. Father, thank you that you move into our lives and live in us by your Spirit. Thank you so much that we are your people, united to you and united to each other. And Father, thank you that you've given us a purpose to live for as we live to worship you and serve you as a kingdom of priests. Lord, you're an incredibly gracious God and we love you so much. Amen.